Okay, here we are. Here we are. Uh, you want to read that, Jim? Psalm 1997, are you there? 97. Mem, is that Miriam? Yes, Mem for Miriam. <laughs> Mem, water, chaos, mighty blood. Oh, how I love your law. Meditate on them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are never, they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gained underst I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. He's almost braggadocious there a little bit. Yes, he? that's okay. He can brag all he wants because he's in love with the, the word. Yeah? Okay, I got urgent prayer request from Nazareth Elite Israel. Let's see here. Dear brethren and prayer partners, Shalom. We are in urgent need of your prayer support. Today I received a phone call from the owner of the building where our fellowship holds meetings. He said that because of our activities, the Orthodox Jews who have been moved into Nazareth Elite recently and given new apartments, new condos, just given to them, uh, he said that because they've moved in, made a tremendous pressure on him, the owner, to stop his contract with us, which is supposed to end in 2019. We've been renting this place from him for 20 years and never been late with payments even one day. We turned the place into a warehouse, into a palace. We just finished a big renovation of the building and invested in it more than $15,000. A month before the renovation, we had a talk with the owner. He promised that he wouldn't sell the building and that he would extend our contract after the current one ends. That is in 2019. The owner wants us to leave within two or three months by our own quietly. So obviously that's uh, something that is heavy on their hearts and uh, uh, bad news for them. And we also have... Uh, our sister Kim, who I mentioned last week, has had a bone graft and a hip replacement. She is doing fine. I got an email from her today. She says, you know, getting with age, it's not the same as recovering 20 years ago, but we'll keep her in prayer as well. And Paul, who's obviously not here, still still struggling. And uh, our brother with cancer, that, uh, we want to remember him as well. So, Lord, here we are in your presence, and we bring each one of these to... Uh, your attention and to your uh, care, and we would ask uh, that this church over in Nazareth would be would be uh, glorified. You would be glorified through whatever happens. If they uh, are allowed to stay, how wonderful that is! And if not, fifteen thousand dollars is just a little pile of nothing to you. You can return it to them in a great way in some other place with a better place. Maybe that's what is supposed to happen. Whatever it is, you are aware of it. We pray for it. We pray that your hand will be with them and help them to keep calm and to uh, prevail over the wickedness around them through the love of Christ. And maybe some people will come to a knowledge of you through that. We would hope that this would be the case. Lord, uh, we thank you for the chance to meet here and to uh, come into your presence and to study your word. We would ask that you would be with us through that and uh, that we would not depart from your precepts. Certainly we pray for Kim, who's uh, recovering from her hip surgery, and for Paul, who's obviously still uh, troubled with his own difficulties and we pray for Tom who's uh, still facing uh, his battle with cancer and Lord we thank you for all of these things that you are certainly attentive to we thank you that you are and we praise you 
love you, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Is that where uh, Sergio and Rhoda go? That, that is like not, that. but that's their friend. So uh, they, uh, they attend, I believe, well, I don't want to say, because I'm not sure where they go every week, and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but uh, Rhoda's father is a pastor, and I'm sure that he spends a lot of time with them, but I don't know if he goes to that church at times or not. I just don't know. But uh, uh, just so you know, I'm going to announce this before we get into Romans 7, verse 1. Great chapter of Romans. Um, it, there is, um, if you have answer, and this is not, you know, a guarantee or anything, but uh, you should read up on it, you should study on it, is um, there's a person that uh, has cancer that it had a friend who had it very bad and was about to check out completely, and he started to take apricot seeds. And um, that was something that actually, uh, it, he came back, like from the deathbed because of it. And uh, apparently what it does is it, uh, I'm announcing this because several people online have cancer that you know I pray for from time to time or that email me. And um, uh, it, it, what it does is it forms cyanide, but only when it's close to cancer cells. And so the cyanide actually kills the cancer cells. And uh, so I was talking to uh, Tom about that today, what kind of a dose you would want. Um, just in case I forget to email one of the people that asked about this, um, 15 doses or 15, uh, yeah, doses 20 times a day. Is that right? Or 20 doses 15 no, no. times a day? 15 doses of, of 10 seeds. Okay, 15 doses of 10 seeds. Okay, so that's what it is. 10 seeds 15 times a day. And that is supposed to be the recommended amount to uh, hopefully work on that. And like I say, I'm not saying that that's going to work, but it's something that did help one person and he became cancer free because of it. And uh, so it's something to at least read up online, and uh, if it will help you, that's great. And um, uh, anyway, 15 times a day, 10 apricot seeds. Let's keep that's going. chemo. 20, 20 seeds, 15 times a day. 20 seeds, 20 seeds 15 times a day. Okay, 20 seeds, 15 times a day. Sorry about that. I, I, 20, and that's why I'm glad that I said this now, because I would have gone home and I would have forgotten. 20 seeds, 15 times a day. And they work much better. When prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. When you pray and when you, when you have prayer. That's correct. Yes. Okay. I'll do that next time. I don't want to get too much into that this week. But apricot seeds this week. If you have it, let me know before the class. Okay. And um, uh, it, it just it's on my mind, and I don't want to spend too much time on that outside of the Bible. But it's something that somebody specifically asked me about, and I don't know about that one. So it, what's it called? Graviola. Okay, graviola. Look it up online, and there's obviously something right. else that may help with that as well, but I don't know about it, so I can't comment on it today. And I don't want to take time out of the class, but graviola, look that up online, and uh, 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 apricot seeds as well. Anyway, let's get into Romans 7, verse 1. Okay. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives, Okay, he's going to make a wonderful, obvious connection here concerning the law and death and marriage and remarriage and all of that kind of stuff. It is, it's so obvious. You know, if you think what Paul is writing through clearly, I don't know how people can keep saying we need to observe the law of Moses, and yet I get these emails and posts constantly. I, I, it's, it's constant. You do a sermon on Leviticus, you know, one of the Leviticus things, and you say at the beginning of the sermon, the law is annulled in Christ, and they say, it never says that in the Bible. And you can quote all ten times that it says that, and they say, well, that doesn't say what it says. So, But Paul is going to 
not explicitly say it, but implicitly say exactly the same thing once again, starting in 7.1. It has been made abundantly clear in chapter 6 that we are no longer slaves to sin. Why is that? Can somebody tell me why we're not slaves to sin? The Lord fulfilled the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. That's correct. By the law is knowledge of sin. He fulfilled the law. We are not under law, and therefore we are not slaves to sin any longer, okay? But we are slaves to righteousness. We have died with Christ and shall also live with him. No doubt about it. It says it's going to happen. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say if you do wrong, you're going to lose that salvation. Nothing like that. You have died with Christ. You will live with him. Death has no dominion over Christ, and therefore it no longer has dominion over us. Can I get an amen on that? No dominion over us at all. We cannot die again. And that's not talking about this physical body. That is spiritual death. We will never, never face that again. We are reconnected to God. It is done. All right. Now in chapter 7, we're going to be shown our relationship to the law. If we get this chapter wrong, we're going to have a very confused idea about what we can and what we cannot do. Churches all over the world levy requirements from the law of Moses onto their congregants because they fail to grasp and adhere to the precepts which are found in chapter 7 of Romans and which are explained elsewhere in Paul's writings. Can anybody think of a, a requirement in a church that you were at from the law that they say, well, you, can't, you, you need to do that or you, you can't do that? Anything? Something from the law of Moses that your pastor at another church has said you should or shouldn't be doing. Have you ever had a pastor no. tell you to tithe? Tithing. Tithing. Well, there you go. That's a precept from the law. And we could go through other precepts as well. You know, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't well, do that. Tithing you, is they what? Tithing is what Yeah, tithing is almost... It, and that's one thing that I said right at the beginning of my sermon on Christian giving. I said, when you go into a church, the pastor almost exclusively will stand in the pulpit and talk about the grace of Jesus Christ. Almost exclusively until it comes to the time to pass the plate. And all of a sudden, it's thrown out. We've got to set aside the grace for a couple minutes. We're going to tithe you, and then we're going to get back into grace. It doesn't work that way. Any precept. Some of them say that you need to observe the Passover. Christ did, and so you need to. If you observe the Passover you, you know, or the Lord's table, you should only use uh, bread without yeast. Now, I'd agree. In type and picture, that's true. But it doesn't say that in the New Testament. In type and picture, Christ is the sinless Son of God. Not having yeast in there is honoring of him. But if you're in a church and they have bread with yeast, don't get up and yell at the guy, okay? <laughs> All you need to do is say, in typology, this is incorrect, but it doesn't say one way or another in there. And you're going to get little things like that, pet peeves of somebody that they just want to tickle you over. Don't let them do it, all right? So anyway, chapter 6 explicitly said that we are not under the law but under grace, okay? Chapter 7 will show us how this happened, and will demonstrate that the law has no authority or claim on us. Zero. The law of Moses has no authority over us. It has no claim on us. It cannot. Once again, as I said at the beginning of the sermon a week or so ago, does have you ever been in a church where they inspect people for boils before you come, you start the sermon? Right? You've got a boil, you have to leave. Well, guess what? Under the law of Moses, if you have a boil, then you need to go into an inspection. You have to be isolated for seven days and then they inspect you again and if it has yellowish hair in it and all of these crazy things. Not, never mentioned. Never mentioned. But all of a sudden you've got to do this and you've got to do this but we forgot about the boil part. It is all or it is none. 
It is a unified whole. That's why it's called the law of Moses. And these are individual commandments within the law. If you violate one commandment, you've broken the whole law. Exactly. It's done. So you cannot pick and choose. I have never been in any church, Jewish, Messianic, Christian, or any other church where they said, does anybody here have a boil? You're excluded from the fellowship. Okay. Crazy. All right. So don't let people pull that over. And as a matter of fact, if somebody ever reinserts any precept from the law into your church that you happen to be going to, whether on vacation or whatever, then what I want you to do is say, have you inspected the people in this church for boils today? And if they say no, then say, I'm not doing that. All right. That's all you need to do. Okay. Pay heed to Paul's words in chapter seven, because it is the law because the law is all or nothing. As I just said, if we are under the law, we are obligated to the whole law. Every single precept of it. Where is that found? I already quoted it once to you, but I want to read it directly from the Bible so that you have it. It's in the book James. That's right. So we're going to go to the book of James, Hebrew James, chapter 2. And it's, uh, let's see here. There it is right there. 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point... He's guilty of it all, right? That's it. It's either the law, all of the law, or it is no law. You have transgressed the law, and if you have transgressed the law and you believe you're under the law, then you should probably be headed to Jerusalem to make your sacrifice. Oops, there's not a temple there. You can't do that either. Something is amiss, okay? So it's either all or it is none. If we are not under law, then the law has no part or claim on us. Zip. We cannot pick and choose which part of the law is still required and which isn't, as so many churches attempt to do so. I can't tell you the number of emails I get throughout the week where it says, well, I understand you say you don't have to observe the Passover. One guy actually said that to me. He says the New Testament says that you have to observe the Passover. Got that email this past week. Well, no, I know what he's talking about. It says, let us keep the feast. And you know where it says that? Okay, what is he talking about? It's not speaking about the Passover at all speaking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, believe it or not, a picture of the church age, and he spiritualizes it by saying, let us keep the feast, not with the malice of wickedness and blah, 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 but he goes on and he says, the Feast of the Old Testament was pointing to something in the New. So, totally wrong. You have to observe the Passover according to this guy. He has set apart the grace of Christ, and he is a debtor to the entire law. Sorry about that. Okay, um, so... And uh, so to set the tone for his argument right here in chapter 7, he writes these words, Or do you not know? <clears throat> this is a rhetorical question, which he's asked about six of them already, and it's to be taken as a statement of fact. It's like saying, surely you realize this truth, right? Everybody got that when he says a rhetorical question, he's not asking anything. He's making an adamant statement. After this, he explains his position to his brethren. Let me read it. Or do you not know brethren? So who is he writing to? Is he writing to the people out in uh, uh, the churches of, um, of uh, Scientology? No. He's writing to people that are saved by Jesus Christ. Anytime he writes the word brethren, he's doing it for a reason. He's saying this is inclusive of people in Christ and nobody else. It does not apply to anybody else. And until you are in Christ, this does not apply to you. Okay, so anytime you see the word brethren, or some say brothers, or some nowadays say brothers and sisters, um, whatever, it's kind of PC. It doesn't say that in, in the uh, Greek. It says Adelphoi, which is a masculine noun. But I think I've said this before. If I haven't, it is inclusive of women. Okay? I mean, just like it used to be in English when we said um, 
everybody rise or whatever, you know, it, you say something in the masculine, it includes the women in the congregation. Anytime there's one male, then you would address it in the masculine, and then if there's only female, then of course you'd say it only in the feminine. Well, the Greek is the same. When he says brothers, it's inclusive of everybody. There's no need to be PC and say brothers and sisters. It is implied. It's okay. like from New Jersey. Hey, you guys. Hey, you guys. I do it to people all the time. I even say it when it's only three girls in a place. I say, hey, guys. You know, yeah. It's just, it's not being a, a, a whatever. Who is that girl? Ashley Judd apparently really got down on somebody what? for the, yeah, in an airport today or yesterday. She really got down on somebody for something like that. Yeah. Called her sweetheart. Sweetheart. Yeah. Hi, sweetheart. And she went ballistic. Like, you can't even. You, you open a door for some women nowadays and you get a purse against your head. Why are you carrying a purse? You know, I just. The whole thing makes no sense. Anyway, um, so he asks this restore, uh, rhetorical question and then he addresses it to the brethren. Although he's writing to all within the church and his words are doctrine for all. He is directing his comments to those who know the law. Brethren who know the law. Read that again. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So in particular, who is he speaking to? Converted in the Jews. Converted Jews. Jews that are now brethren in Christ that know the law. Okay? And maybe some of them are having problems there, and they're saying, well, what do we do about the law of Moses? And he is instructing them, just as he has all the way through chapter 3, chapter 4. He's introducing an issue to Jews and then the Gentiles, and he's very methodically showing us this, this process of uh, what the Lord is doing in the church age. All right, so he goes on, uh, writing to those who know the law. This would be the Jewish brethren who have an understanding of what the law is clear about. He says, surely you realize this truth from the law itself, right? Here's the law, and you guys are going to know this. When I say this, you're going to say, yes, I understand that. That's basically what he's doing there. This would be the Jewish brethren who have an understanding of what it is about. And then he brings up a precept from the law, which is as obvious as it could be. He, it is uh, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Okay? Somebody is born to, um, you know, uh, Solomon. Solomon is under the law, right? So Solomon has a child. That child is under the law, right? If that child lives to be 47 years old and then dies, is he under the law anymore? No, obviously not. The law has no authority over him. He's dead. It, it has no authority over him at all. And then he brings up a precept which, uh, oh, I'm sorry. A person born under the law is obligated to that law. The law has dominion over that person. As long as you were born under the law and you were living under the law, the law has dominion over you. All right? The term has dominion is the Greek word kereoi. Okay, I wrote it in English, which is harder for me to read than in the Greek, believe it or not. If I see it in Greek, I can read it right away. But anyway, the word is one of ruling. Paul has personified the law to show a comparison to what he's already demonstrated in chapter 6 when he personified sin and righteousness. Remember when he did that? Okay, well, now he's personifying the law. The term, as long as he lives can also rightly be translated as long as it lives, okay? In other words, it's, it's not clear, is it speaking of the person or is it speaking of the law? The ambiguity is certainly to show the truth from either direction. As long as a man is alive, the law has ruling authority over him. Everybody got that? All right, or as long as the law is in effect, it has ruling authority over the man. But if the law is abrogated, it no longer applies. So it goes either way. And like I said, he could have been more specific. He wasn't. 
And so when he gives this ambiguity in one of his verses, he's usually trying to make people think both ways. We do it in English all the time. We'll say something that is ambiguous, all right? Um, one time I, uh, I, I'll say it, I left a job that I was at and uh, uh, I rather upset and I left the keys on the desk and I said I won't be back. And uh, the, a couple days later, the guy called up and he said, um, he said, uh, are you coming back or not? And I said, I was pretty clear. He said, you were a little ambiguous. I said, I may have been vague, but I wasn't ambiguous. There's a big difference there. All right, when I say I won't be back, that means I won't be back in the rest you can infer. But yes? Kind of a correlation with that would be if death allowed the woman to be free of the law of her husband. Right, which we're going to get to in about two verses. Oh, I thought we were there. No, not yet. Go ahead. I was just going to say the crucifixion of Christ frees the believer from the That's law. exactly right. That is exactly the point he's going to make, 100%. That has to be the correlation. Yep, that's exactly right. So you've got one, if you're born under the law, then as long as that person is alive, the law has mastery over you. Or if you are uh, under the law and the law is abrogated, meaning through the body of Christ, mm -hmm. then you are not. And he will explicitly say that in just about two verses with the one. Yeah. Absolutely. 100, very, very good. That's 100% correct. So uh, uh, where was I here? Um, uh, okay, uh, the term as long as he lives, I already said that. Okay, so or as long as the law in effect, it has ruling authority over a man, but as he just noted, if it's abrogated, it no longer applies. However, based on the comparison he will make in the coming verses, the translation, as long as he lives, is the intent of this passage, okay? He wants you to think both ways because he, he you know, entered into it a little bit of ambiguity, but he is certainly thinking as long as the person lives, okay? And that, as he noted, will be because of a woman under a husband, which we'll see in just another verse or two. Little life application, we'll get into the next verse. If you are under the law, it has dominion over you. If you die, you are free from the constraint of the law. Likewise, if the law is abrogated, you are free from its constraint. Think on this and apply it to your Christian walk. Either a law applies or it does not. If it does, it does so entirely. And if it doesn't, then it is of no effect. Okay? Don't just think of that from a biblical context because sometimes we get confused about the Bible. Is God telling me to do this or not? If you just think about it from your own society, you're walking in uh, Sarasota, Florida. You are alive in Sarasota, and there is a law, right? If you die, obviously the law has no effect over you. It's never going to prosecute you. It's never going to charge you or anything like that. It's all over for you. Or if you're in Sarasota, and the law of Sarasota is superseded because Manatee County assimilates Sarasota County, right? And Manatee County says, we are throwing out that law, that law, that law, and that law then you're no longer under that law, right? Everybody see that? So just think of what, what Paul writes about is always comparable to something that's going on in our own lives. That's why he makes these analogies. The law is set aside in Christ. The law is annulled in Christ. But if you're dead, okay, which is what he's talking about, the law has no power over you. Does anybody know where he's going with this before I say it? If you are dead, the law has no authority over you. Yes, so you're dead to sin. But how? Christ. Through Christ, and that's the point he's going to make now. I just wanted you to think that through in advance. Okay, so here we go. Verse 7-2. Uh, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. There but we go. her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Right, that's exactly what he 
thought about even before he read it. That's exactly what Paul is speaking about. The woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband, okay? If the husband dies, she's released from the law of the husband. Unless you're in India, does anybody know what they used to do with Indian women when the husband died? Bury him with her? They didn't bury him with a funeral pyre. They threw him on the fire with her. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tie, tie her and throw her on. Yeah, absolutely. They, they throw her right into the fire of her husband. So that's a little different over there. But the British stopped that. When they took over India, they, they said, you are no longer allowed to do that. So they, they could take out cool the till death do us part. Yeah, until <laughs> death do us part is literal in, in yeah. India. That's absolutely right. Okay, 7-2. Uh, in his ever-consistent writings, Paul confirms his words in this verse in another verse, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, hang on a second here, one he's very, very clear about saying the same thing again and again and again in different ways sometimes, but he always gets the same message across. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, he says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, so he's making the same application, but now he's speaking about marriage for a woman. If you're going to get remarried, it has to be to a Christian, okay? That's just the way it is. How many times do you see somebody make that fundamental error that is raised a Christian, that goes to church, they marry a non-Christian, and how well it works out most of the time, right? It's a disaster. There are times it works out, the husband is converted, great that that happens, or the wife if it's a non-believing wife, but it is not the Lord's intent, all right? If you're married, don't divorce your non-believing husband or wife. You know, just keep working at it. You're the one that got yourself into it. But it is always best to follow the Lord's word. These are almost always, with Paul, exhortations. They are not commands. Almost always. And why? Because the Lord wants what's good for us. There's nothing in the Bible that says you absolutely cannot marry a Christian and stay in the fellowship of the church. But you should do it, okay? Because you are the one that's going to suffer. Okay? Anyway, so we'll go on. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39, it's an obvious truth. The marriage of a woman to a man binds her to that husband. He is the head of the family, both under the law and also within the New Testament context. That's found in Ephesians 5.23. As a matter of fact, let's just read it so that we have that uh, proper context. The husband is the head of the man. Ephesians 5, verse 23 says, um, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. It's a very complicated passage if you read about, um, uh, in uh, what is it, uh, 2 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians 14, when he starts talking about the husband being the head of the wife, and then he says um, uh, the authority of, the symbol of authority of the man is the woman's hair, and if she doesn't have that, then she should be shorn, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, we can go over that. We will go over it someday. But uh, it's a very complicated passage for some people. They believe that women have to wear bonnets in church and uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what it's speaking about at all. When it says that a man's head should be uncovered when he prays and a woman's head should be covered when he prays, the covering, believe it or not, is the hair. Okay, A woman's covering is her hair. And the word that he uses for head also means head, like the head of the body and the head of the, uh, the organization same word. So you have to be very careful when following through with Paul's comments. If that's something that you want to know about, if it's bothered you, if you got somebody in the church that's stuck on that, I did an entire commentary on that particular passage. Every single word, every single detail, I can send it to you. Uh, it, it, 
very clear what he's saying, but we can really get it muddied up very quickly. So anyway, just so you know, Paul is consistent. The male is the head of the family, okay? Being bound to that husband means that she has vowed to perform her duties as a wife and to be faithful to him. However, the death of the husband releases her from his headship. She is no longer bound to him, okay? This simple example of the husband-wife relationship will be used in order to demonstrate a truth concerning our relationship to the law. The Bible uses such simple examples, as I said, with, you know, Manatee and Sarasota County. But Paul is always bringing in the simple so that you can understand the complicated. It uses these simple examples to keep us from mistaking deeper theological truths. Unfortunately, even such simplicity is often overlooked or ignored in an attempt to continue down improper paths of our relationship with Christ. As I said with, you know, telling somebody the law is annulled in Christ, and they say it never says that in the Bible. And you take them to that verse and you say, here's what it says in that verse, and they say, well, that doesn't really say what it says. Words have meanings. Even tenses of words have meanings. When Paul says something in the passive tense instead of in the active tense, he's doing it for a reason. When we speak, we don't say something like, um, Jim is a really nice guy, and I hope that she has a good time at... uh, it doesn't make any sense. He is a he, right? Unless you're in the LGBT community, then anything can go. But, you know, we, we have words for a reason. We speak certain ways for a reason. When somebody types, they're a really nice guy, and they say T-H-E-I-R, we want to correct them because that makes no sense, right? T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, all right? Words have meanings, and people don't want to hold to the meanings of word in Scripture. What they want to do is hold on to what they were taught when they were young by a pastor that had his own agenda, or what they read one time off of a sign with one verse taken out of context with a picture around it that made them believe something else. You can't do that with the Bible. The Bible is always a book of context. As a matter of fact, let's go through our laws real quickly, because we haven't done this in a while. What are the five major laws of hermeneutics in the Bible? The five first laws that we is want to know. Is it prescriptive? That's the first one. Okay, this is just in case somebody's watching and they haven't seen this. The first law is, is it prescriptive? Does this verse tell us to do something? Does it prescribe something to us? Okay, that's the first law of hermeneutics. Is it prescriptive? Actually, I shouldn't say it's the first law for hermeneutics, but it's one of the first five and uh, it, it sets the tone for it. Does this prescribe something for me? Because sometimes something prescribes something in the Old Testament, but it's not for me. We'll get to that in a minute. What is the next one? Is it descriptive? Is it descriptive? If it's not prescriptive, then it's probably prescriptive. It's simply describing what happened. Okay? Paul says women are to marry anybody they want, but it must be in the Lord. Is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? It's prescriptive. It's saying you need to marry somebody in the Lord. I'm telling you that this is what you should do. Now, here's another one. Paul says he was shipwrecked. shipwrecked. It's, it's descriptive. I'm just simply describing what happened in my life. It doesn't tell us to do it. it he's not telling you all to get on a ship tonight and go out in the sea and, and get shipwrecked. That's not what he's doing. He's simply telling you what happened. So always, always, always ask yourself, am I being prescribed something or is this simply describing something to me? Okay, those are the first two, but they are based on three, four, and five. What is number three? Context. Context. What is the context of what I'm reading? Because if you get the context wrong, Abraham is told you have to do this thing. Does it apply to you or not? Right? Probably not. 
in the law, it tells you to have to, you know, if you have a boil, you have to be inspected and be separated from the community. Well, obviously, that doesn't apply today. So context actually matters. And this is what most people don't realize, is that context matters. The next one is just as important as context. What is it? Context. It's context. Because if you don't get context right, then you've got a problem. So make sure that you keep everything in context. And there's one more that's very important. Context. context. That's right. Is it in context? As long as you get context, then everything else should probably flow smoothly. So is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? And what is the context? Because just because something is prescriptive in the Old Testament does not mean that it's prescriptive in the New Testament because the context says otherwise. But if you're not sure, then go down and check the context because it'll probably help you. And if you're not sure there, try one more time with the context and eventually you'll probably figure it out. Those are your five major rules to get you started with hermeneutics. There are 10,000 other rules, but those are the five important ones. Okay, so context, context, context. And we would say the context is king. Always, it's the first thing that you want to have on your mind. What is the context? Who is Jesus speaking to? What is the dispensation? When he says no man knows the day or the hour, who is Jesus speaking to? Israel. He's speaking to Israel. He had not yet been crucified. He had not yet been resurrected. The church was unknown to every person he was speaking to. He was speaking about something coming in Israel's future that had zip to do with the church. That doesn't mean that that same concept can't be used in the church because Paul says it's not for you to know the times or seasons or actually doesn't say that Jesus is the one that says that and Paul says brethren we don't want you to be ignorant about times and seasons he's confirming Jesus words we are not going to know these things all right somebody actually emailed me about that this week as well and he says well see the context says that uh, we do know when he goes down in the next three verses he actually says we don't know all right and that's all in our 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 evaluation, which is being published right now. So if you read it every morning, you'll follow along and you'll see exactly what Paul is saying. Anyway, um, context. Always context first. And then from there you say, well, is this metaphor? Is this allegory? Is this prescriptive? Is it descriptive? You've got 10,000 different types of writing. What is When it says that the mountains clap their hands, what kind of, what kind of speech is that? Do mountains have hands? Do mountains clap? No. Okay, so you have to know what is the Lord speaking about. There's an entire study called hermeneutics, and you get a book. They're usually not real thick, and they just give you terms and definitions, and if you read it once in a while, like once a year, read the, the book on hermeneutics about the terms and definitions of how to interpret what is being said in the Bible, it will help you immensely. And just once a year, it'll take you a couple nights to read it, and it'll just be a wonderful help to you, all right? hermeneutics. Just type it in, get a little book, and just get one with the explanations. Don't get into the ones with all of the detail where you need to do this and that, because eventually people get long-winded and they start violating their own hermeneutic. But just get the terms and definitions of hermeneutics, read them, and it'll be a great help to you. Okay, um, let's see here where we're in chapter two here, and um, improper pass, endeavor not to be swayed by those who follow such avenues of disobedience. When somebody has a, an improper understanding of what is being said in the Bible and they teach that to you, you're going to get led down the wrong path. No doubt about it. Here's a perfect example because I started typing. I've been waiting for this now for literally, literally months. How long ago did we start the book of uh, Leviticus? It's been 20 sermons. So how long is that? That's... Um, uh, 20 sermons is what? I don't know. It's, uh, 20 weeks. 20 weeks, but how long is 20 five weeks? Months. About five months. Okay, so about five months. All right. I started typing 
this Monday, Leviticus chapter 16. And it is marvelous. Usually I spend about 10 hours on a sermon. I get up on Monday at 4 o'clock and I start typing and then I have to go to work for about an hour and a half and I come home and I usually finish about 4. And Hedico got home, it was 6 o'clock and I said, don't even get started. Just go take care of the dogs. I was not even close to finishing. And then I spent another three hours on it yesterday. And then last night, as I was telling Burke, I went to bed thinking two more things that I needed to resolve. And this is only verses 1 through 10. Two more things I needed to resolve. And I lay there and I thought about them. And one of them came to me. And about 30 minutes later, the second one came to me. And I looked up and it was 2.55 in the morning. And I had to get up at 4 o'clock. So it, it, it's been wonderful. It has been just, it hasn't been this fun since Jonah. I'm telling you, it is really? just absolutely wonderful. Glorious. So, March 26th. Uh, March 26th we started. So it's been a while. And uh, it will still be another 10 weeks until we get into um, the Leviticus sermons. And uh, I have every every belief that we will get into them, and that's after September 23rd, which oh, yeah. is supposed to be the big rapture. So I have no doubt that, I, 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 will, I will say this right now in case somebody's watching, Anybody that wants to bet if the rapture will be on September 23rd or not, I will bet them $10,000 that it won't be. Okay, Any person that wants to bet, I will lay down $10,000 in a bet if, to say that the rapture will not be on 23 September. That is a standing value for anybody that wants to make that bet. Okay. Anyway, um, it may happen before, it may happen after, it will not happen on 23 September, and I will make a $10,000 bet on it. Well, see, you figured it out. If it does happen, I don't have to pay, and if it doesn't, they have to pay. Now, you just ruined my chance at becoming wealthy. Thanks a lot. Anyway, here we go. We're, we're going to go on with that. You're, you're a smarty pants. You. Yeah, I, I could have been really wealthy but another couple days, but uh, anyway, here we go. Uh, let's see here. Life application. Not a lot of uh, meat in this verse, but life application. When an object lesson is given in the Bible, it is done so that we can see easy to understand concepts of issues that are often complex or which could otherwise lead to heresy. Actual heresy if ignored. Oh, I didn't finish about Leviticus 16, which I'll tell you in a second. Pay close attention to such simplicity because it will guide you as you wade into the deeper theological waters. Okay, the point I was making about Leviticus 16 is that... Um, uh, took all of that time to uh, think a couple issues through, but one of the things that is taught about Levitic or the Day of Atonement is what? It's a fall feast, and therefore it has yet to be fulfilled. I brought that up several times, right? People say that the spring feasts were fulfilled in Christ's first advent, and the fall feasts were fulfilled in Christ's second advent, when he comes the second time. And I've always said, all along, very, very adamant about this, all seven feasts, including the Sabbath, which makes an eighth feast. All feasts are fulfilled in Christ. No doubt about it. Now, I've had people, when I say that, they always email me and say, well, you need to watch this video sermon series because this will prove that it's not true. It is absolutely true. And when we get to Leviticus 16, if you were willing to go through the three or four or even five sermons that it takes to get through that passage, you are going to say, not only is it fulfilled, but I can't believe how marvelous that passage is. You are going to say it, you're going to say that is the most astonishing passage that I've heard since I can't since the book of Jonah. It is it is marvelous what is pictured. But it is fulfilled. In its entirety, it is done. And if that's one of the three fall feasts, what does it tell you about the other two fall feasts? They're fulfilled. Absolutely. To say that the law of Moses in its entirety is not fulfilled in Christ means that Christ didn't fulfill the law of Moses. Right? 
And that means that we are still waiting to have it fulfilled for us, and we are following the wrong Messiah. Okay, we are bound to the law, or actually, we're not even we're not even considered because Gentiles, guess what, are not a part of the law. It belongs to Israel. All right, so we'd have to be grafted into Israel. We'd have to go and get circumcised and start doing all of the things that they demand in their culture. Wrong. The law is fulfilled, including all seven feasts. Wait till you get to Leviticus 16. You are going to love it. I, I, I am absolutely certain of that. You will enjoy that set of sermons if you can stand all of my stutters and, you know, you, you will enjoy it. I promise you. Verse 7, 3. 3. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. Yes. If, she, if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Another man. Okay. What Robert brought up a minute ago now comes into full force and understanding, exactly as he said. Okay. What are we termed in the church? Bride. The bride. Okay. Some people say that's not correct. It is correct. He says, I have uh, betrothed you to one husband as a virgin, blah, blah, blah. Where does he say that? Ephesians, I think. Okay. So we are the bride. Okay. We may not specifically be called the bride, but we are the bride. And Paul says it right here as well. He's using an analogy of a a husband and a wife. Okay. The analogy has to be based on something and it is his understanding that we are, uh, you know, uh, betrothed to the Lord. Okay. So here we go. Um, Therefore, verse, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 7-3. So if then it takes us into consideration of the previous verse. Okay, so let me read both of the verses together so you have it in context. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Verse 3, so then if, based on what he just said, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. So she is, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. Okay, so here we go. Uh, that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives is what he's speaking of. However, should he die before she does, then she is no longer bound to him. But if she, if he is alive, well, she, she does remain bound to him as long as he is alive. Okay, here's a yes. What about the, uh, how does this come into play, the certificate of divorce? Right. Moses. Well, that's what Jesus said to them. And I'll I'll answer that in just one second. I'll get right to that. Uh, The point is, though, before I answer him, he asked about the certificate of divorce that uh, Moses allowed them. As long as the husband is alive, okay, she is bound to her husband according to the law. All right? Now, um, uh, if he is attacked by robbers and he goes brain dead but he's still alive and his heart is beating do you think that the law had any anything for that no No, there was no technicality that said you were no longer bound to him as long as his heart beat and as long as he was alive she was bound to him as soon as he died then she could marry another person and that is what he is speaking about here what he just asked about is Jesus words where he said um, but you know, what do you say about the law? Moses allowed us to have a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The law allowed that. Jesus said that he accommodated, Moses accommodated the people in order because he knew the hardness of their heart or something like that. I'm misquoting it, but that's basically what he said, is that he knows the propensity of man and he made an allowance for a husband to issue her a certificate of divorce. When that happens, she's no longer bound to him by law. 
Okay, that's what the law said. But Jesus took that to a higher realm, and he said, but that was not the way it was from the beginning. Okay, and he went on to say after that, he quoted the Genesis account of the man being given to the woman, leaving his uh, father and mother, and they would be united as one. Actually, the onus is on who in the Genesis account? It's on the man. It's not on the woman. All right? It says he will leave his mother and father and be bound to the wife, and the two will be one. Okay? He, Jesus qualified it, and he says, if you divorce your wife, you make her into an adulteress. Okay? He's saying that that is the Lord's original intent for the marriage. All right? The law gave them an allowance. We have the same allowance in the society today, but the original intent, which precedes the law of Moses, is that we are not to divorce. We are not to do it. Okay? Now people will email, and they'll ask questions like, well, you know, the church I'm in says that if you get remarried or if you get divorced, then you're being kicked out of the church. Okay? Or if you get remarried, you're an adulteress. All right? Is divorce and or, and or remarriage, is that an unpardonable sin? No. All right? There is no unpardonable sin except the one that is defined in the New Testament, and that com- comes under two contexts. One of them cannot be done uh, by people today. The other one is explained as a constant uh, you know, rejection of Jesus Christ, the calling of the Spirit, until the day he dies. And once he dies, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He can no longer come to Christ. He, is, he has shunned Christ until his death, and he is out. The other context of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit doesn't apply at all today. It only applied to Israel under the law and especially the people at Jesus' time. But we can get into that later. I've got it written down if you want it. I can email it to you. But uh, that, that's a separate issue there. The issue is that if somebody does get divorced and they do get remarried, it is not an unpardonable sin. Christ's blood covers all sins. And so some churches have held that up as something that, well, you've committed a sin and you're no longer in the fellowship. Hey, you know what? Go look in the mirror. You've done plenty of bad things yourself, and you know you have, and you're being a hypocrite about it. But that does that answer that question? The original intent for marriage was always to remain married to the person that you were betrothed to. And, you know, if you want, well, I won't get into it. I, I was going to give a perfect marriage example, but I won't. Anyway, <laughs> what's that? Darn it. No, no, no. I'll give it to you when we're not on the, on the, on the video. You'll laugh. Oh, it's, I just have somebody in my family that had the perfect marriage. Oh, boy. Um, and they're still married. It's still a wonderful marriage, but it was perfect at the time. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, she's no longer... Uh, so then, if while in this state she remarries somebody else, she will be called an adulteress. As long as she is bound to her husband, as long as they're still married, she will be called an adulteress. The Geneva Bible says about this, that is, she will be an adulteress by the consent and judgment of all men. She not only is called an adulteress, as if she were somehow being improperly maligned, but she has called it as a matter of fact. She has betrayed her vow to her husband and before God. Wonderful comment by them. However, Paul continues, If her husband dies before she does, then the law which bound her to him dies with him. She is free from the obligation and the vow which made them one. Even though she has a new husband, nobody can mark her as an adulteress. She is free to commit herself to him wholly and entirely. This example is given to show us a theological truth which will be explained in the verses to come. Okay? Life application. Are you bound to your spouse? Oh, I'm sorry. As you are bound to your spouse while they live, live 
as if they live. Be faithful in your marriage and in your promise which you spoke before your creator. Okay? If you're married, live as if they're alive. Okay? Verse 7 4. Um, just before I do, okay. does yours say if your husband dies before she? Or was that did you just before she dies? Um, did you, or did that just what he mean? Verse 3, you mean? Yeah. It says, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free okay. from that law. Right, because you were explaining it, it said, well, which only makes sense before she dies. Right. Said, oh, okay, okay. Makes sense, but... Okay, so, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. There you go. That you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. There you go. That answers it right there. Verse so that's also why he was ambiguous. That's what I think. Yeah. The ambiguity, when he does that, there, he's always trying to get you to look at it from both angles. Even if he explains it from this one, there is another application which could be submitted if you wanted to write even more about it. But he's giving you an ambiguity so you can think, what is he saying? And then when you get to the next one, he says, oh, I see what he's saying, but it still applies this way as well. Okay, therefore, because of the contents of verses 1 through 3, we can now make the necessary connection. He addresses my brethren. Once again, he's speaking to believers. This is the same as was noted in verse 1. Although this applies to all within the church, he is speaking to those in the church who know the law. Once again, he's speaking to Jews. To clear up any confusion among Jewish believers and to instruct the Gentiles in the church who might otherwise be inclined to listen to wrong assumptions, which those Jewish believers might come to and teach, he gives his concluding analysis of this thought. You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Okay? If Christ is our husband, and if Christ died on the cross, or actually we, he's speaking to Jewish people, so we'll just leave them as the husband for right now. They had a marriage contract with the Lord at Mount Sinai, right? Everybody understand that? That was a marriage contract which happened there. It's a, uh, if you see a, a, a Jewish wedding, what do they get married under? The canopy. canopy, that's right, okay? And then what was over Mount Sinai at the time of the giving of the law? The canopy of the Lord. It was a marriage contract that they were given. And so the Jews, he's actually speaking right now to Jewish believers, okay? We're the bride now in the New Testament. But as far as the Old Testament, these people were under a marriage contract with the Lord, okay? When the Lord fulfilled the law, he did what? He died on the cross of Calvary, right? He died. And so when he died, what happened to them? They are no longer under that law. The law is fulfilled. The husband is dead. All right. The law is annulled through Christ. I don't know how people can't understand that. It's, they talk about all of this Jewish symbolism. They talk about all of the, oh, yeah, you get married under a hoopah, and you do this, and you do that. And then they say, well, we're still under the law. Just think it through. The law was the, the one who gave the law. It says the Lord gave it to him, right? He died in fulfillment of the law. They're no longer under the law. Okay, so we'll go ahead and reread that now. Um, to clear up any confusion among the Jewish believers and to instruct the Gentiles in the church who might otherwise be inclined to listen to wrong assumptions, which Jewish believers might come to and then teach, he gives us concluding analysis of the thought. You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. He's been speaking about a woman's connection to a man through the bonds of marriage. When the husband is alive, she is bound to the husband through law. If the husband dies, 
then her obligation to the husband dies with him. Likewise, when Christ died, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of the law, those who were under the law became dead to the law through his body. Like I said, how this can be misunderstood is almost beyond imagination. It is as clear as the ink on the paper that Paul wrote with. And yet throughout history, people have attempted to reinsert the law or selected portions of it as they pick and choose. Thus, they reject Paul's clear and obvious analogy. It is as clear as it could be when you think it through. There is the marriage contract. The marriage contract ended. Christ has released us from the law completely and entirely. He's not partially dead, so she's still partially married to him. He's not partially dead, so she can partially get married to somebody else. He died completely, all right, and now she can go find a new husband and she can get married to him and live a happy life. You're either dead or you're alive. It's one or the other. The same is true with the law in Christ. Christ has released us from the law completely and entirely. It is done. It is over. It is finished. It is set aside. It is obsolete. It is replaced. It is annulled. All of those are said in the book of Hebrews. Can we not comprehend this? Rejecting this premise is a rejection of the work of Christ. He has freed us by justifying us. He has freed us from the law's penalty. He has removed the curse of the law from touching us ever again. All right? Do you want to be under that law where it says, if you don't do these things, I'm going to do this and this and this and this to you in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28? so bad that the people were told that when you don't obey, I'm going to hem you into the cities and you're going to eat your own children in the famine and the suffering that's coming on you. Is that what we want to be under, a law like that? No. Christ came and he fulfilled that law for us. He took care of the problem for us. All right? The death of the law is clearly, clearly noted in Colossians 2.14. What does it say there? Does anybody know that right off the top of their heads? Took it out of the way, nailing it. Nailing it to the cross. Absolutely took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Everything that stood against us is nailed to the tree. Why should we somehow desire to remove that nail and reject his cross when he has triumphed over it for us? Instead, we're now married to another. If we were married to or obligated to the law, which is God's standard, and the law is dead to us, then let us now be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead, as he says right there, of course, this is Jesus. Only he fulfilled the law. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned. Therefore, death couldn't hold him. Our marriage to him is to one who embodies the law. Our fulfillment of that law is in him, not in our futile attempts to meet its demands. Because we are married to him, Paul says, let us bear fruit to God. How do we do this? By honoring the son, right? When a woman marries a husband, how does she honor him? Uh, or, you know, how does she bear fruit in the marriage? By honoring her husband, all right? God is glorified when we call on him, when we live for him and fulfill his will for our lives. And what is his will for our lives? Right here. This is it. This is how we bear fruit to God, okay? It's right in the pages of the Bible, and you've got to have the right context. You've got to have the right context of what God's will for us is. Because if Paul just said that we are not under the law, and we're back there trying to fulfill the law, are we honoring God? No, absolutely not. If we say, I need to observe the Passover to make God happy, then we're not making God happy because it's fulfilled right up there on the cross of Calvary. See that? Everything follows naturally. If you just 
take Paul's words and go down them methodically and carefully, it's very clear what's being said there. Oops, somebody just about came in here. A little boy wanted to come in, and the <laughs> mom grabbed him, and no. Anyway, and come on in, boy. We'll teach you, teach you some. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, okay, attempting to be justified by the law that he has fulfilled for us is to reject his work. In essence, it's saying to God, I don't need Jesus. I have this one covered all by myself, right? That's exactly what you're doing. This isn't bearing fruit to God. It's dishonoring to him. If you see the logical progression of what Paul is writing, he went on from speaking of our justification in chapter 5 to our slave-master relationship in chapter 6 and now to our marital status in Christ in chapter 7. All of this is directing us to how we are to interact with God through Jesus Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are slaves to Christ, not the law, and we are married to Christ because the law is dead to us. All right, everybody got that? It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Life application. Stand firm. Anytime someone tries to reinsert the law, any precept of it, then reject their words. If they say you can't eat a bologna sandwich or if you must tithe, then correct them. If they ask why you don't have a Saturday Sabbath, then instruct them. In the end, it is all law or it is no law. Find a precept they don't adhere to. Like I said, ask them if they check for boils on Sunday morning or offering animal sacrifices or wearing clothes sewn with two types of material. Just anybody that says that to you, go to their shirt and pull it down that little thing and look at the back of it. If it doesn't say 100% pure cut and say, you know, you're in violation of the law, you stand condemned before the Lord. Guess what? and show them the illogical nature of their partial adherence to the law. It is all Christ, or it is no Christ. All right? You see how adamant Paul is about this? I mean, I talk about this all the time. Like, why does Charlie keep bringing up the issue of the law? Because that's what Paul brings up. Paul is trying to tell us exactly what we need to do to be pleasing to God, and that is to rest in Christ. It's to trust in Christ and to say, I love Jesus Christ. Right? I love to see people post on Facebook about Jesus. I absolutely love it. There's, I bring her up from time to time. The girl that had that one Grace T-shirt, yeah. right? Oh, all day, man. That's all you see on her thing. You know, she'll say things bad about um, uh, Democrats once in a while, but normally it's just all Jesus all day. You know, like uh, today she said something about, you know, one of these days Jesus is going to come and we're just going to blink our eyes and be gone. She says, are you ready? Ah, oh, it's just so exciting. You know, there are people that just really love the Lord now they're not so caught up in the rapture that they're not doing their job, but they're waiting for the rapture every moment of their life as well. It's a balance. We don't want to get too far on one side or the other. You want to be balanced in your your theology there. Anyway, um, let's see. What was the name of that stuff again? I need to write that down before we go because I want to read up on that too. Gravely? Okay, write it down for me because I don't want to forget that as well because I want to send it to my other friend. What's that? This church to here, Paul had not been there to Rome, had he? No, he had not yet been to Rome. Okay, so he had heard that there must have been some questions about the audience, because Romans was a Gentile place. Right. But there were Jews there, too. There were Jews in that church, obviously, right. because he's calling them. But right. there must have been something going on between the Jews. There's and no them. doubt about it. That's why he says, you, O Jew, and then he says, the Je he's going back and forth in this, and you're absolutely right. But the one thing you want to remember, when Paul writes all of his letters, all of them, they're addressed to who? Brethren. Well, in, in, the, in the, the, the letters, it's to the brethren. But in the title, it is always Gentile churches. 
Romans, yeah. Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philippians, Philemon, um, uh, Galatians. They're all to Gentile peoples that have a problem because the what did Paul first do when he went to a place uh, to evangelize? He went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue first. He always went to the Jews first, and he always gave them the message of their Messiah having come in Christ. Okay, and then what happened? After that, the Jews would always stir him up. Not all of them. Some of them would believe, and they'd become a part of what he was doing. But for the most part, he'd get rejected, and he'd get stoned or thrown out of town or whatever would happen. He'd be chased all over the place, and he'd go to another town, and he'd follow the same pattern. But while he was in that town, before he got kicked out, he's got a group of, we'll say, five or six Jews that were being instructed by him. And the Gentiles that went to the synagogue, they were called proselytes. They wanted to know what the Jews were up to, and they heard the message and they said, this is unbelievable. They came in great numbers. And so you have this small group of Jews and you've got this great number of Gentiles and that's the church that's in there. But the Jews did not get out of their head all of the things because they were so instructed in circumcision and Sabbath keeping and all of these things. They, that's fine. If it is cultural for you to be a Sabbatarian, and be a Sabbatarian. But when you say this is religious, I am required to do this, you have departed from grace. You see, there's a difference. And they could not separate the culture from the religion. They, to them, it was one thing. And so they said, you guys need to do this too. When in fact, no, they didn't. They are Gentiles who do not need to do that. That's what is happening in Romans. It's what happens especially in Galatians. Either you're going to get Galatians or you're not. And if you don't, I don't know how you can mess it up. It is so clear. He uses Peter as an example. You know, Peter's a Jew that came in to Christ, right? He's saved. And then what does he do? He goes into Gentile houses. No problem. And then what happens when the Jews that didn't feel that way came? He withdrews. That's right. He starts hanging around with Jews and saying, well, I don't eat pork. And I don't do when he'd been doing it a day before they showed up. And Paul called them out on that. He said, listen, you can't do that. You need to be the proper example. If you're going to live as a Gentile, then you need to do it in front of the Jews as well and show them the truth which is found in Christ. You're absolutely right about that. Okay, so verse 7, 5. 5, okay. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we, were, so that we bore fruit for death. That's right. Let me read mine. It's just a little different, not much. For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Very close, but a little, little different there. All right, verse 7, 5. The term for when introduces a continuing explanation of the previous verses, particularly verse 4. We have be become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Excuse me. This is so that we may be married to another, he says. Because death nullifies the previous marriage... Now that we are in this state, we are to bear fruit to God. This is the thought of verse 4, and now for when is given to show us the contrast in the type of fruit from then and from now. For when we were in the flesh must mean when we were under the law and prior to our spiritual rebirth. It can mean nothing else based on the context of what has been given. Therefore, the flesh is the life under the law and its attempts to merit God's favor apart from Christ. And what was the result? The sinful passions which were aroused by the law. How does the law arouse passions? To answer that, we go right back to 3.20, which we did, you know, it hasn't been too long since we were in chapter 3, but in verse 3.20, he says, um, 
therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. When you have a law, you suddenly realize that you're a lawbreaker when you don't do the things of the law. So by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's where that comes from. All right? There is no sin where no law has been given. However, with the giving of the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in violating the law, our members are working in a way which will bear fruit to death, as Paul says. As we noted in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Absolutely. That's what Paul is saying. He says the law is a knowledge of sin. We sin by breaking the law, and then from breaking the law, the wages of sin is death. We have earned it because of the law. It's like we're getting our pay. All right, so give you a little uh, uh, progression of thought. One, the law is introduced. Two, the knowledge of sin comes through the introduction of the law. Just think of Adam. One law, and it's a negative command. Don't do this one thing. You can think of it there, or you can think of any of the law of Moses. The law is introduced. The law, the knowledge of sin comes through the introduction of law. A violation of the law is an act of the individual which then deserves payment. Four, the wages of sin is death. Five, therefore the fruit of death has been born through the law. You see the progression? That's what's happening. It's what happened to Adam. It's what happened to the Jews under the law. We are freed from that body of death. Paul has been consistent in his thoughts as he has progressed through his letter. Each step is working towards a fuller understanding of what it means to be in Christ and free from the constraints of the law. Pay heed to what is given and apply it to your life and doctrine. Romans is a foundational letter of what it means to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, some people call it the Constitution of Christianity. It is the foundation. We have a constitution in this nation. It sets the basis for all of our laws. Everything and every law that we pass in this nation is to be based on the Constitution of the United States of America. Unfortunately, once you start passing laws that are not in accord with the Constitution, you start having what is called a constitutional crisis, right? Happens all the time. Somebody passes a law, and then the judges get in there, and they say, well, that's not a good law when it's a good law, or they say that's a bad law when it's not. It just gets crazy, and we have these crises of Constitution because of that. How much more of a crisis are we in when we take this book and we mishandle it? How much more? Because this is God's word to us. As human beings, this is what is expected of us. And when we say, well, Paul says this, but doesn't matter. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He was chosen by God in Acts chapter 9, by the Lord in Acts chapter 9, to carry this message out. He is the one that sets the doctrine for this church age. Paul. Paul sets the doctrine. Okay, We can't go back to the Beatitudes and set our doctrine unless they are reaffirmed by Paul, which they are at the end of the book of Romans. He repeats a lot of the information out of the Beatitudes. But there are things that Jesus spoke to Israel under the law that do not apply to us in any way, shape, or form. Context, right there. And if that doesn't help you, go to the next one. Context. And if you still can't figure it out, check the context, and it should come clear after that. Okay? We've got time. 7-6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old ways of the written law, written code. Absolutely. He calls it the letter here, written code, same thing. It's the, the law of Moses, what is written down. But now, he says, we're introduced to a contrast from the preceding verse, which said, for when we were in the flesh, 
the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The law which aroused us in us sinful passions is behind us. We've been delivered from it. You wait till we get to the end of this chapter and you're going to see that Paul explains this right about himself, right? He's going to apply these words to himself so that nobody should be able to say, I just can't do it because Paul shows you how to do it. Anyway, we'll be there in a couple of, couple more verses. It won't be long, but um, we've been delivered from the law. The law should no longer arouse these things because we are dead to it. As it says, having died, there is a dispute as to the meaning of what having died is. Is it the law that has died to us, or is it we who have died to the law? That takes us back to what Robert and I talked about at the beginning of the class. Some manuscripts imply one and some imply the other. The answer is that the law is in full effect for those who do not come to Christ. If you haven't come to Christ, if you are a Jew, right, and you're living in Israel and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are bound to the law of Moses. That law with all of those curses and the terrible things which will happen if you don't obey, the punishments and all of the, the wrath of God, you're bound to it. It is the natural outcropping of not living out the law that he gave you. Every person is bound to the law or they are in Christ, okay? So, there is a dispute, as I said. Um, uh, therefore, those who have received Christ have died to it. We have died with Christ and are raised with him free from the law. You're in the law or you're in Christ and there is no other option. It's one or the other, okay? The law held us captive and we were slaves to it. But when we died with Christ, as Paul is so precisely detailed in all of the previous chapters, we were released from its bonds so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Okay, what does he say about the spirit? The spirit gives life, right? But the letter kills. That's right. The words I speak to you are letter, um, are, uh, say it again, spirit and life. Thank you. That was Jesus' word. John 6, 63. Thank you. Okay, now this is one that uh, this will help you understand. He's going to say something here that is an object lesson for us to understand exactly what he means here. I'm going to read my last sentence again. Now that we have died to the law through Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled the the law. Hang on, let me go back and I I skipped one whole paragraph. The last verse I read or uh, sentence of mine that I read you was so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This theme is going to be reintroduced by Paul on several occasions in his epistles. The oldness of the letter is speaking of that which was written down. It's the law. It was received on tablets of stone, and it bound the people of Israel to sin by showing them their utterly sinful nature, right? Now that we have died to the law through Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled the law, including his death, which was in fulfillment of it because the Old Testament showed that he would die, so it's a precept of the law, and he even fulfilled it in his death. We should serve in the newness of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 18, which is what I was thinking of when we were just talking a minute ago, a detail of the difference between the letter and the Spirit is given. Paul says there that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay? Everybody know that verse? 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me take you there really quickly. I want to read that so you can see the object lesson that Paul is giving us. 2 Corinthians 3. Yes, he said, um, well, let me go to 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory 
uh, image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, so there we have that. And uh, actually, what I wanted to read you was the whole thing, not just 18, but uh, 1 through 18. So let's read the whole thing, because I want to make sure you get this entire picture here. It's only going to take a second. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need as some other epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now remember that. I'll read it right before we close out. Okay? The Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance which was uh, which glory was passing away how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious for if the ministry of condemnation meaning the law had glory the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory he's making a contrast between the law and grace he goes on verse 10 for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses, read, Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Uh, comment on that is that it actually, is an, uh, it says the veil is taken away. It's actually the law which is taken away. But uh, we can get into that when we get into this particular uh, passage. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the verse I wanted you to remember was who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter but of the Spirit for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And the Bible gives us an object lesson in that. The Spirit kills the law, by the laws, the knowledge of sin, we commit sin and we die, right? But the Spirit gives life. There's not the law, and so we're given life. We're reborn in Christ, but the Bible actually gives us an object lesson of death and life in the giving of the law and in the giving of the Spirit. It says, um, Paul says there that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. As a real, tangible example of this, it was noted in Exodus that the giving of the law that 3,000 people who disobeyed received the wages of their sin and they died. Remember that? Yeah. Take your sword, strap them on your side and go kill. 3,000 people were killed after the giving of the law. That's Exodus 32, verse 28. However, at the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost, 3,000 people received the gift and were saved. So it's, the Bible itself is giving us an object lesson, a tangible lesson for us to remember. The Spirit 
gives life, whereas the law kills. 3,000 died, 3,000 were saved. All right? That was Acts 2.41 if you want it. This is not an arbitrary pattern, but one set in the pages of the Bible specifically to show the difference. Death from the law or death to the law and life through the Spirit. Okay? The law will only bring death, but when you die to the law, you are given the Spirit. How sad it is that people want to go back under the law, which is a law of death and condemnation, and give up on the Spirit of Christ. How utterly sad it is, and yet it is the most common type of email that I get from day to day. Day to day I get emails on this. People, my, my brother is into the Hebrew Roots movement, or I'll say something on a prophecy update and I'll have 10 Hebrew Roots movement people email me and tell me why I'm going to hell because I don't observe the law of Moses. And it's, it's almost debilitating when they have given up on the grace of Christ and they put themselves under a law which can only condemn them. All right. This is another example where the oldest is replaced by the new. Yeah, absolutely. So. The first is replaced by the second. That's all the way through the, the Bible. You're going to see that pattern again and again and again. You have um, uh, Esau being replaced by Jacob and you've got... Um, uh, you know, um, I could. What are they? Uh, Esau. You've got uh, Isaac is replacing Ishmael, and you've got Abraham, who is actually the uh, younger brother, replaces the older one as the one in the line. But you have to infer that one from the Bible. You have to do a little bit of studying, but it is correct, and you're going to see that pattern. Uh, um, Seth had to replace uh, Abel because Abel, you know, was born second, but he was killed by his brother. So you're going to see the second replacing the first again and again and again and again. It goes all the way through the Bible. It's a picture of Christ replacing Adam. It's a picture of the New Covenant replacing the Old Covenant. And you'll see it all the way through the Bible. Many I've got a whole list of them that I made of all of them in the Bible, and I've got it recorded somewhere. But you'll see it again and again and again. Every time it's making the same picture. The second replacing the first. God is showing us King David. What's that? First Adam. Yeah, the first Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. The first Adam is the man of flesh and the second Adam who is Christ is the the spirit, the one from heaven. That's right. So it's explicitly stated right in that passage. But uh, David replaced Saul, the first king of Israel. And you just go through it. It just happens again and again and again. Anyway, um, we who have called on Jesus now have the spirit and we may walk in that new state. There is an eternal hope which cannot be taken away, and the evidence is our placement in Christ, free from the bondage of the law, and thus free to serve our new master. If that verse right there in this commentary on this verse right here doesn't show you eternal salvation, I don't know what else can. I mean, if you are in Christ and though you have died to the law, and the law is dead to you, you can't die again. You might lose your joy, you might lose your life, you might lose your wife, you might lose whatever, but you are not going to lose your position in Christ. It is impossible, all right? We're free from the bondage of law, we're free to serve a new master, life application, and uh, I don't know, we've got a whole page here, I don't know if we can do one more, we're going to stop after this one. Life application, we have died to the law, so heed the words of Paul from Colossians 2, verses 20 through 22. Let me read you that. Colossians 2. Let me see here. There it is. 2. All right. Verses 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. All right. 
We're not under the law anymore. We're not under man's law. We're not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. When the, what the law has bound you to is gone. Live for Christ and do not reintroduce the law to which you have died. Okay? And I, I suppose I could say this 10 million times and somebody will still decide that they want to go back under the law of Moses because they start attending a church where they say you have to do this and they get scared. That's why you have to repeat this again and again and again. Always remember. Always. I said this in the church on Sunday two weeks in a row. If you don't learn anything else, anything else, if you leave the church and you never come back, you never come to another Bible study or anything else, if you just remember that you are not under the law, it is a self-condemning act to do that. And I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation because if you're saved, you're saved, but you will lose your joy and you will lose every single reward that you think you're gaining by observing the law of Moses in part or in full, which is impossible, by the way, but you will get no reward from the Lord. You are saying, Lord, I understand you saved me, but I will take care of it from here and I'm going to do a better job than you. It's impossible. He's done every single thing. He's fulfilled every single point and precept. Wait till we get to Leviticus 16. You're just not going to believe it. What a marvelous passage. What an absolutely marvelous passage is coming. You'll love it. I assure you of it. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer. A couple minutes early, but that's all right. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come here and to uh, be in your presence and to uh, share in your goodness. And uh, thank you that uh, we have this building that we can meet in and for the people that come and congregate here. Thank you for those who are online or that will watch later. And I would pray that they would be blessed even through all of my stutters and my, my inability to get words out sometimes. Or I, I just, uh, I'm grateful that they're willing to learn your word, to stay close to it. And I would pray that none of them would ever fall from the grace of Christ and start to reinsert something which is already fulfilled by him. Lord, we do pray for those who are ailing. We pray for those who are having financial troubles and for those who, like over in Israel right now, who may be losing their church because of uh, uh, just the world coming against Christians, whether it's in Israel or whether it's around the world. It's getting worse and worse for Christians in this world. And uh, you knew that this would happen, and you are with your people. So if they lose their church, let them not lose their joy in you. And uh, just help provide for them a place where they can congregate, where they can meet, and where they can glorify you once again. Thank you for this precious word. Thank you for the weekend which lies ahead and help us to just remember you and everything we do and to keep our hearts geared towards you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What ah, you were saying about how the, uh, the Jews that were kicking out this messianic church. Yes. How they got were given all the... Uh, yeah, the given problem. everything. I'll tell you, like, you know, you talk to non-Christian Jews who are familiar with Israel, they are like given about the, oh. the religious section. Like, they get everything for free. They get everything for free. Absolutely right. right. And Oh, let me back this up. Hang on a sec. Let me uh, uh, say goodbye to these folks here and then we'll sure. finish that. There we go. You guys have a wonderful week. We love all of you. Take care. I don't know. Did you write that down for us, Carol? Gabiolia. Get, no, not Gabiolia. She's got, I don't know. I, um, I thought she was saying ravioli. Ravioli. What's the three phrases of the context? One is what is the context, oh. then what's the other what? Oh, context, context, and context. What? That's it. It's just remember the context is king. That's all. That's why another, it's a joke. Nope. Not at all.
Not at all. That's it. Just context, context, and context. Ravioli. <laughs> Ravioli.